right, everybody. Welcome, welcome here to show 102 on Crypto Voices. Uh, very happy today to be joined by Idan Yago, goes by Yago, contributor to the interesting Sovereign Protocol, a uh, decentralized and permissionless layer two financial system uh, built on top of Bitcoin. Uh, so very excited to talk with him today. Uh, Yago, thanks a lot for joining. Thanks for having me, Matt. Lots to talk about about Sovereign. Uh, but before we get into that, just want to sort of back up your background, a little bit big picture, but but also we can we can kind of keep it more brief and specific. I'm fascinated. I've heard you talk about when you were younger. Uh, I'm fascinated to learn a little bit more about your gold smuggling stories uh, due to your sort of your family and your geographic uh, nature when you were young. So maybe uh, maybe we can just start out with that. Sure. So I come from a family that has been causing trouble for authorities for well over a century and probably longer than that if genetics are anything to go by. But um, the particular story you're referring to is um, I, I grew up in South Africa and uh, one night in, I was woken up when I was a, a young boy uh, to a commotion. And I, uh, I snuck out of my room to find out what was going on and I, I peeked at my uh, uncle uh, my grandfather uh, were hastily and somewhat panically whispering um, in the living room. And uh, my grandfather handed my uncle some keys, keys to the car. And later I discovered that what had happened was that my uncle had made his way to my grandfather's house in the middle of the night because he uh, was associated with the ANC. Uh, which was uh, Nelson Mandela's uh, organization, which later became a political party. And he was, he was involved in fighting the apartheid government, as were many of my family. Mm -hmm. And um, the apartheid government had, um, had, had gotten wind that the apartheid government had decided that he was a terrorist and they were, they were going to try and arrest him that night. And so he and his wife made their way to my grandfather's house, uh, switched cars, and then drove to Botswana through the night to get out of the country. And um, he and several other members of my family basically fled the country. And so I ended up, uh, my mother went and bought Krugerrands, which were these one ounce gold coins that were minted in South Africa. South Africa at the time was the producer of 80% of the world's gold. And the Krugerrand was like the, was sanctioned. And, and, and so it was the most scarce, it was like the cassatious coin of, of, of gold. <laughs> yep. And um, Very famous. so my mother, my mother uh, acquired some Krugerrands and started sewing them into my clothing and sending me overseas because they wouldn't search kids. So I would fly alone as a, as a, in order to smuggle gold out to my family. Uh, who had fled the country. They were a bit more kinder back then, weren't they? They wouldn't search kids, not what you would find in the airport today. Yeah. Just a side, yeah. side comment. Yeah, <laughs> it, was a, it was a different, I mean, there was a, there was a naivety to the 80s that even the, even the fascist regime of the apartheid government <laughs> was less bad than the TSA. Unbelievable, <laughs> unbelievable. So where were you taking the gold? To, to Israel. Um, wow. So we, we, we ended up eventually immigrating to Israel. Uh, and then, you know, there, there was a whole other set of things there, but, um, uh, but yeah, I mean, you know, I, um, grew up outside of sort of the sphere of the, you know, Western NATO world. Uh, and so, um, I, 
over the course of my life and sort of certainly my parents and grandparents' generations, uh, we all sort of got to experience firsthand um, what uh, corrupt and weak governance looks like. And it imbued me with a certain instinct and distrust for, for the, for the way the power of, of government can go wrong. Um, and how often that actually happens, how, how rare and precious a thing relatively good governance is. And I think the, one of the insights was that the way it it impacts most people is through their pockets. So what governments always try to do is try to control uh, money through capital controls, through um, inflation, um, and uh, sometimes through direct confiscation. And the reason they do that uh, is, first of all, because they need cash. But beyond that, um, it is the most powerful form of control. You can control large swaths of the population by... Um, reducing their ability to have financial sovereignty because financial sovereignty is the way that you, you know, put food on the table and a roof over your head. It's the way you take care of your relatives when they're sick and it's the way that you plan for your future. So if they can control that, they basically got you by the balls. It's interesting. I mean, you mentioned Western NATO countries as well. Um, You know, a lot of our listeners know I've been mentioning a lot more and more on recent shows uh, just everything that's going on, uh, obviously with the pandemic, social order breakdown and things, but like you're seeing it really uh, violently here in Eastern Europe, uh, just like it was 70 years ago uh, in Belarus, in Russia, violent crackdowns, staged suicides. It's really unbelievable. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm right on the border of it right, right now in Eastern Europe. Uh, it, thankfully in a NATO country, uh, it's a whole different discussion, a lot of a lot of some some libertarian Americans want to be out of NATO. Some libertarian uh, Americans appreciate NATO. Most libertarian Europeans appreciate NATO. But that's a that's a whole different discussion and a whole different can of wax, I think. Um, but it is it is just incredible how history repeats itself. And um, yeah, we're, we're really we're really going through some some hard times here. It, I think it's fascinating. There's also wanted to drop this as well. There's a book. One of my favorite books about like sort of putting real stories to gold is by an uh, 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 author named George Tabor. It's called Chasing Gold. He talks about um, in September of 1939, literally the same month that Poland you know, fell to the Nazis, took a month. Um, and during that month, they managed to basically smuggle uh, 90%. I don't know, it was like the vast majority of their gold uh, in unmarked buses through all of their different central bank offices, which were all around Poland, down through uh, Europe, through Hungary, uh, Bulgaria, Romania. They eventually got it to the Black Sea. It got on a ship. They had, to, they had a nervous time in Istanbul. When they got to Istanbul, they got on a train from Istanbul. Then they got on a, on a, uh, a French carrier, eventually got it to the Mediterranean, uh, eventually got to France. Uh, and then in France, you know, they're having their own, times with the Nazis, the gold makes its way to Northern Africa, to parts of the Caribbean, and eventually like most of the above ground gold after World War II, it found its way to the United States. But it's incredible to hear the actual story of this and like think about the security of one's sovereignty, of one's financial wealth, of their assets. You know, most of the time it was 
Krugerrands or diamonds or um, yeah. gems, you know, before uh, obviously, obviously before uh, you know, digital payments. It w- wasn't really cash as much. It was mostly diamonds and gold. But thinking about the actual security of such a thing, I mean, this was up to the whims of the captains on these ships. I mean, there was basically the whole time there was one member from the Polish central bank that would travel with this gold in unmarked crates. I mean, it's just unbelievable. It's an unbelievable thing to think about when you actually talk about like the security concerns of gold and why gold was used as were diamonds to get to get uh, wealth and, and your sovereignty across borders during during uncertain times. It's really yeah. it's really incredible and certainly a lot of parallels for uh, for Bitcoin today. I think you know the phenomenal thing when you think about it is we tend to think, especially after, you know, we've we've experienced quite a long period of relative peace in the world. Um, and so I think people struggle to have memories longer than their lives. And, um, yeah. and so, you know, people feel secure, uh, with, uh, you know, a bank account, um, when not that long ago, you know, one lifetime ago, a, a sovereign nation was so vulnerable financially that they, that they were reduced to smuggling gold themselves. And, and so, you know, the, 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 the country's wealth was, yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, at, at risk uh, uh, along this entire this entire journey, um, and so, you know, the way I tend to think about it is, it, you know, there's there's this idea that that's developed, um, sort of become fashionable over the last fifty years of of finance. It's called the risk free rate, right? Mm-hmm. And the idea is that uh, cash or, or treasury bonds are, are risk-free. And so you, whatever it, the interest rate on them is, that's the risk-free rate of money. It's at least what you want to get in return. Yeah. But I always, I always try to think about these things in terms of, you know, tail risk, long tail risk. Because over the course of, a, of one human lifetime, the world will... I think every single human lifetime that has ever been lived, you know, uh, the world will go through convulsions and changes. And um, so when I think about, you know, long-term savings, store of value, uh, monetary and financial sovereignty, the, 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 Part of what I'm factoring in there is how do I make sure I can provide for myself, my future, my family, even when things start to break down, even when the trusted intermediaries become untrusted. And um, uh, that's been a primary attractor to me of Bitcoin because Bitcoin basically is, I think, the first asset ever which runs the gamut of potential use all the way from the most extreme risk scenarios. You can protect yourself, you know, even if you're the, 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 the being invaded by the, by, by the Nazis, right? All the way to everyday payments. And so that's, that's a phenomenal type of asset, which has never existed before. Really is. And uh, I think it's, 
even for people that are very versed in this, they understand it, they, um, they appreciate the value proposition that Bitcoin offers. There's so many, I think in Western Europe, and I think certainly in the United States, where they're just, they are kind of isolated from the other traumas of the world and uh, unrest in the world where they don't think about it as much. It's not top of mind as much. But I tell you, I mean, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not a doom and gloomer. I don't want like the world to go to hell for Bitcoin to do well. It's not my game at all. But um, it's just interesting. I mean, the news more and more, I mean, you're seeing like, besides crypto and Bitcoin adoption that's happening now in the West with hedge funds and stuff, you're seeing on the other side, I mean, massive, you know, margin calls. Um, which I think would be interesting to talk about later as it relates to your platform, but, uh, or your platform that you contribute to. Sorry, that's old lingo I, I, I'm using. Um, <laughs> it's but, our platform. Uh, yeah, yeah, absolutely. But, you know, this Archegos and like everything that happened last week, these, you know, billions and billions of dollars of margin call, um, which could cascade into more things. You never know. You never know what's going to happen. Again, I'm not, I'm not saying it from a doom and gloom perspective, but every day to me, I've, you know, I've been following this for, over 10 years now and like, well, about 10 years, I should say exactly. Although I unfortunately wasn't buying at that time as most of my listeners know. Uh, every day, like the news gets better and better for an asset like this, but it's not necessarily like safer and safer either in the world. So again, it's, it's this weird uh, positive cycle for Bitcoin, but not enough people think about it and really from this threat level that I think they need to, they need to think about it, particularly in the West. I think one of the things that I think about and sort of see as part of what I'm trying to foster and you know work towards is I I believe that the vast majority of people will not recognize the need for um, a truly sovereign asset. Uh, that they will not recognize the need for a store of value that can see them through very difficult times until it's too late. Mm. So um, I think people have a, a, a very strong tendency everywhere towards a status quo bias, towards primarily learning through their own experiences. And people tend to imagine that tomorrow will look very much like today. And so I think to the extent that I've had other types of experiences, um, and to the extent that I recognize that human nature isn't going to change, uh, one contribution that I want to try and make is to try and get Bitcoin into the hands of more people before they know they need it. Yeah. And so um, all of the work that I've been doing over the last you know, almost decade now that I've been working in Bitcoin is uh, trying to... Uh, work towards or provide tools which um, sort of introduce Bitcoin to people in their everyday activities and behavior uh, without them having to notice it or be aware of it. And the biggest thing I, you know, the, the, before starting to work in Sovereign was around um, remittances and, and you know, mm -hmm. building out a remittance platform, which basically, you know, People didn't have to have to want to hold Bitcoin. They just had to want to get money back home. And that's a need that many, many millions of, particularly the most vulnerable people have. Yep. And so that was um, a way of trying to, to, you know, bring them into 
sort of elevate their degree of personal sovereignty uh, without that having to be their, their explicit goal. When did you start working on uh, Sovereign and the idea for that? Can you give us a little background on that? Sovereign started during the pandemic, the early days of the pandemic. It became apparent to me and a few other uh, people that I knew mostly through the Bitcoin space that um, uh, global supply chains were breaking down. And this was particularly clear that uh, you couldn't get masks to people who needed them. Uh, you know, you guys might remember the massive mask shortages that there were from February all the way, you know, through to the middle of 2020. And so what we started working on was putting together a decentralized network, which would bypass the need to have global supply chains by allowing people to create masks um, locally and then be able to match them with international donors and, um, uh, and, 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 you know, hospitals or doctors who needed those masks. And uh, so we created a project called Block 19 and uh, people could contribute with Bitcoin. And what we, and we started building out this network. And over the course of building out this network, we started looking into uh, the technology stack that we could use to build it. And we also started having conversations about, you know, what things had happened in Bitcoin or hadn't happened in Bitcoin uh, over the years that surprised us or disappointed us or excited us. And, and one thing that we kept on coming back to was that from the very earliest days, um, I think everyone wanted to see um, decentralized censorship resistant alternatives to the centralized intermediaries that we, you know, most Bitcoiners today use, right? And primarily I'm talking about exchanges, uh, custodial wallets and, um, and lending platforms. Mm -hmm. And it's always felt for me the greatest absurdity or irony of Bitcoin um, and where it, where it sort of fails is that you, we have this pristine, decentralized, you know, incorruptible monetary asset. But anytime you want to use it, which is, you know, what you need to be able to do with a monetary asset, you end up going through intermediaries. Yeah. Uh, and so the security of Bitcoin itself is fine, but Bitcoin's ecosystem um, is full of these security holes, which are these cent centralized intermediaries. So uh, over the course of those conversations, we just decided that uh, enough was enough. We weren't going to wait anymore. And um, a bunch of developers um, who I have uh, been helping and uh, been, you know, now basically spent all my time working with, uh, we started... Um, so working on Sovereign and the goal with Sovereign uh, was first and foremost to provide uh, censorship resistant alternatives for using your Bitcoin when you're you know, trading, margin trading, lending, borrowing or creating stable coins, because those are the primary use cases for Bitcoin uh, where people are currently going through intermediaries. And how did you decide on uh, on RSK as being uh, sort of a linchpin in your system? 
Well, we had a few criteria that we wanted. Uh, and I think we wouldn't, if RSK didn't exist, we wouldn't have started working on this. Uh, or rather, we were waiting for the right type, right technology stack to be available. So <clears throat> we want this to be secured by Bitcoin. In RSK's merge mind and secured by Bitcoin proof of work. We wanted Bitcoin to be the native asset and the only asset you ever need to use. Uh, and we needed the ability to have um, what uh, Nick Zabo called smart contracts, which is the ability to um, basically write code which uh, is executed and governed by the Bitcoin miners. And yep. using RSK as a base, we were able to do all of these things. Um, so what RSK, what Rootstock is, is it's a Bitcoin sidechain. So it, it, it extends the capabilities of Bitcoin by having a separate blockchain, which is, secu- is also secured by the Bitcoin miners in, their, in the course of them securing the Bitcoin main chain and has Bitcoin as its, um, its uh, native asset, right? Just like the Bitcoin blockchain. Yep. Um, but has a uh, different... Uh, technological capacities. And so, you know, I think the, it, it was always the idea up until the block size wars that um, any technology that was useful to Bitcoin can, could and should be adopted by Bitcoin. And then because of sort of like the trauma of the 2017 block size war, um, uh, culturally, Bitcoin changed, uh, and I think for the worse, um, in that um, innovation or calls for innovation started to be viewed with a great deal of suspicion by a certain class of uh, Bitcoiner. Um, and, uh, and as a result, I think some of the innovative spirit the, the spirit of adventure and the, 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 the understanding that we need to continue to innovate and expand the security assurances of Bitcoin um, has been put aside. Um, and so uh, the, the, the great thing about Rootstock and about Sovereign is I think it brings back front and center the importance of... Um, continuing to innovate, to expand upon the ability for Bitcoiners to maintain their sovereignty and, um, and continue to expand upon the, um, the, 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 the sphere in which Bitcoin remains censorship resistant, not just the monetary sphere, but the financial and economic sphere as well. Hey, just a quick break to remind you that this show is sponsored by HODL HODL. HODL HODL is the fastest and most secure way to buy or sell Bitcoin without verification and with the lowest fees on the market. Trade in any country in the world for any payment method and any currency. So go ahead and sign up with the link hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices and get a discounted trading fee forever hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices when you sign up you won't regret it 
Uh, thanks again to Max, Roma, and everybody over at Hoddle Hoddle for the support. And uh, a reminder, they also organized the very well-run and fantastic Baltic Honey Badger Bitcoin Conference every fall in Riga. So head on over to hodlhodl.com slash join slash crypto voices. Thanks again and back to the show. Can you describe from a maybe a high level technical, but also just a general point of view, maybe security, what would be some of the differences? Because obviously side chains, uh, rootstock, these have been discussed a long time. A couple of the other ones would be... Um, at least that are classified as side chains, right? Would be Paul Stortz's uh, drive chain concept and also blockchain's liquid uh, side chain. So I think there's a core idea around Bitcoin, which is that we shouldn't introduce changes or we should introduce as few changes as possible to Bitcoin core. Bitcoin should be like a law of nature, you know, block after block uh, uh, into the future, completely dependable and and and. Uh, unchanging, completely beyond the the whims or controls of any people or person. Um, at the same time, uh, the world changes, needs change, um, and there is a technological component to Bitcoin. Uh, there's use cases that we want to expand upon, and it's very important that we have the ability to introduce for Bitcoin decentralized, intermediary, free ways of dealing with it. So, Paul with DriveChain has this idea, and it's an extremely powerful idea, that if you, if, that really you only need one change to Bitcoin, which is the ability to have uh, side chains. Uh, and then you basically can introduce any innovation you want into the side chains, Bitcoin can continue to evolve while Bitcoin core doesn't need to change. And I think that that is such an obviously powerful idea. It should be front and center of the way that we think about Bitcoin. That said, what we are doing with Rootstock and with Sovereign is effectively working to create and, and creating a sidechain without even having to introduce changes to uh, Bitcoin. And so um, it, uh, regardless of whether it proves to be necessary to have drive chain in the future, and we can talk about maybe some of the differences between a rootstock sidechain and, and a drive chain. Yeah, please. I mean, go, go right into it as, as you see fit. We've solved the problem of having uh, sidechains um, uh, secured by Bitcoin proof of work. And we do this by merge mining. So that in the very act of looking for a hash for Bitcoin blockchain, the miners can also be looking for the hash of the side chain and thus securing both chains at the same time with the same hash power. You're driving additional miner revenue through a new type of transaction which couldn't exist otherwise, right? Which these are the transactions that are occurring on the side chain. And so what happens is you're increasing the security budget of Bitcoin. By increasing the security budget of Bitcoin, you actually secure Bitcoin main chain more. And at the same time, anyone who's not interested in the sidechain doesn't need to run a node, uh, which is larger, they don't have bigger blocks. It doesn't change the type of node that, that you need to run in order to 
you know, be completely sovereign with your Bitcoin. So it's a very elegant solution. Where it gets more complicated and where it's different from, say, merge mining um, right. name coins, altcoins, <laughs> is that for this to be a true Bitcoin sidechain and not just, you know, uh, some other altcoin piggybacking on Bitcoin proof of work, it needs to have Bitcoin as its native asset. So the whole idea with DriveChain is to try and build that trustless peg so that the Bitcoin can move trustlessly between the main chain and the side chain. Yeah. Um, that, and so with DriveChain, the idea is that basically the, the miners help manage that. Um, that's not the only way that you could uh, trustlessly have a peg. So right now we're in the process of deploying a peg, which is trustless in a different way. It, it has economic trustlessness assumptions. And what that means is that um, the, um, every, every time somebody wants to send Bitcoin to the sidechain, a randomly selected uh, group of signers is created who create a address. The Bitcoin is placed into that address and is going to be pegged or held in that address um, until such time as the, the Bitcoin comes back to the main chain. And in the meantime, the Bitcoin is represented on the side chain and, and moves and transacts on the side chain. Now, how do we make sure that this randomly selected uh, group of signers can't run away with the Bitcoin. The way we do that is the signers are forced to put down collateral, more collateral than they would be holding in the peg. So they could steal, in theory, the Bitcoin, but they would be losing more money than they would be gaining. And the depositor would be able to be made whole. So... Um, where DriveChain seeks to have security assurances um, on the basis of uh, Bitcoin proof of work, uh, we are working on security assurances which are based on collateral and economic incentives. And um, I think that over time, what we'll see is more and more work being done as, as, as people become to, come to recognize the importance of having these pegs. I think we'll start to see more and more efficient trustless pegs being generated. And it may be that we never need to introduce any changes to Bitcoin Core at all. Uh, and, and, and one of the reasons we don't have drive chain is because it would require a consensus change to Bitcoin. Involving uh, Sovereign then uh, with, with RSK, can you get a little bit more uh, detail on those security assurances via collateral, how, how exactly that would work? The way it works is... You can't use Bitcoin for the collateral, obviously, right? So you need to have something else. So the sidechain generates financial activity and different assets can be held, managed, transacted on the sidechain with Bitcoin. Uh, these could be equity type assets. Um, so like decentralized equity, right? So if you have a DAO, uh, which um, generates revenue, it, uh, it, it can have like a decentralized equity token. It could be um, uh, representations of real world assets. Uh, 
um, so for example, if a uh, country were to decide that it legally recognizes um, property claims on the basis of, of blockchain, then you know you would be able to have you know mortgages and houses represented on the blockchain, and it can be um, uh, really any other type of it could be debt uh, or, or any other type of asset that you can imagine. And so what we, we, we use is we use these types of assets as collateral. What we are starting out with is sovereign itself has um, uh, basically the protocol generates fees. How does it generate fees? It generates fees through uh, trades, through loans, um, and through the activity that occurs on the system. I saw in your paper that the, when it comes to borrowing and lending, trading, a portion of the fees go to, to sovereign so how would people get a portion of those fees? They basically go to a, a contract which holds the treasury on behalf of the, uh, so like a smart contract, right? Which is part of the protocol. And then um, people who hold SOV tokens um, and lock those SOV tokens in order to basically take on the risks of the protocol and uh, help participate in the governance of the protocol, um, they uh, they can earn those fees, right? Yep. So you can think about this as sort of like a new way of thinking about it. It's a coordination token, um, uh, uh, but the closest example to this that we have, like sort of in the old pre-programmable money world, is equity, right? So uh, a bunch of people want to get together. They want to do something. Uh, which will require their collective effort and, and resources. And so they create a company. That company uh, issues shares, and people can buy those shares, and by buying those shares, they get to vote on what the company does, and they get to earn the yield or the dividend, right, the revenue that the company makes. And they take the risk, right, of the company. Um, so... This is very, very similar, except that instead of being enforced by a court of law, it's enforced by the blockchain itself. In other words, ultimately, it's enforced by the, the Bitcoin miners uh, programmatically and deterministically, and therefore, um, it can be done in a totally borderless way. So as a first asset uh, that we have uh, on the sidechain, we have the, the, the SOV token which is sort of like this decentralized equity um, where, which is censorship resistant and permissionless and represents effectively a new type of asset class, which, is, which exists in the, the Bitcoin ecosystem, right? Uh, with the idea that, you know, as we create this new reserve currency and we create this financial world around it, we're going to create new types of asset classes just like that. And, one of the ways that people take risk in the system is they use this SOV token as collateral against Bitcoin that is transferred into the system. Now, this places a substantial limitation on the amount of Bitcoin that can be transferred into the system because it is not expected that SOV would be, you know, uh, the same market cap as Bitcoin. It probably will always be a very small fraction since it's, it's just one asset. Um, and so 
there's there's a question of how far that can scale. Uh, now you can you can uh, scale in that that process in, in in three ways. One is as additional assets arise, they can be added as collateral as well. Two, you can make the um, system more efficient. So if you make the, the economic assurances and the game theory of the system more efficient, you can actually punish people uh, even with even by forcing them to only hold um, uh, fractional collateral. And so that's something that we're working towards and we expect will be out in, in several months. And then the third thing is you can add in additional layers or, or change the type of insurances. So for example, something like drive chain uh, would, would change the, the scalability sort of in a step function. So uh, right now that scalability, <clears throat> we, we expect that as we introduce that, that this new peg, um, we won't initially have sort of, we won't, we won't uh, we'll, we'll have to see how quickly we hit those limits, but that's sort of like a fundamental limitation on on how big that decentralized economy can get in terms of the amount of Bitcoin that can exist in it. But you also have to remember that you probably don't want all of the Bitcoin on the side chain, right? Um, you, you, you only want the active Bitcoin on the side chain and the active Bitcoin... Um, uh, the, 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 the can can you know a, a relatively small amount of Bitcoin can uh, represent or, or create a much much larger economy around it because if you think about the way uh, finance works most assets um, are 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 not constantly being transacted right um, but uh, only a, a very small proportion of them. Uh, even in even in the current financial system, so basically, uh, I don't think we would ever expect to see all of the world's Bitcoin on go going onto uh, side chains. The Bitcoin main chain will always remain the primary sort of place for for long term long term, uh, you know, sort of non active Bitcoin, but the active Bitcoin which is going to be driving economic and financial activity, I think is most properly uh, going to exist on side chains uh, so that it can be trustlessly used without the need for, for intermediaries. How would you prevent uh, you know, Bitcoin with a certain set of rules on the main chain from finding its way on to, as you said, you don't want too much. What would be too much? How would you prevent it? Would there be, do you, do you, have you thought about that at all? Yeah, I mean, there's no, there, there is no too much uh, beyond what you can move trustlessly, right? So, the the limitation that I was saying, right, is you know, you you right now using the the methodology that we have, you can't move more Bitcoin into um, a side chain than the actual sort of valuable financial activity that is occurring on that side chain. Right. Um, so, for example, let's say that SOVs, uh, you know, um, um, all of the SOV in the world, right, had had a market value of a billion dollars, right? And you wanted to, like, with the RV one peg, you would need to over collateralize. So you could only have about five hundred 
million dollars worth of Bitcoin in the system. If you can do fractional collateralization, right? So you have improved techniques, you can now do fractional collateralization. Let's say you can do 20% collateralization and still be trustless and safe. Then you could potentially have 5 billion Bitcoin on the system, right? 5 billion Bitcoin and <coughs> uh, would then represent your limit. Now, if you add additional assets and, you know, or, you know, sovereign itself as the protocol sort of expands in capabilities and starts generating more revenue, then maybe you go up to 10 or 20 or $100 billion of Bitcoin. Um, and if you change the technique of, of pegging, which I expect over time we will, I expect, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll improve the peg, then, then you, you know, again change the, the limitation. So ultimately, it might be the case that we don't have any limitation at all in terms of how much Bitcoin can be moving onto sidechains. Uh, and then there is a second consideration, which is that you probably still wouldn't see most of Bitcoin on sidechains. Or, you know, a lot of people wouldn't want to hold uh, Bitcoin, which they're not actively engaging on sidechains, because regardless of everything else, regardless of how trustless the peg is, when you move on to another chain, you're basically taking the risk of two chains, right? You're, you're introducing a new layer of risk. If anything goes wrong now, you know, if anything goes wrong with Bitcoin, then you're potentially at risk. But now, if anything goes wrong with the Bitcoin blockchain or the, the rootstock sidechain, for example, you're, you're at risk. So you're doubly at risk. Uh, and there's, you know, if you're thinking carefully about what you're doing, you don't, uh, you don't look to multiply risks unnecessarily. So besides the obvious differences of uh, being two different networks, two different types of goals, how would we compare, say, Ethereum and Uniswap to uh, Bitcoin and SOV? What, what, what are the comparisons? What are the similarities? What are the differences? There is a lot of similarities. So Uniswap is a phenomenal piece of technology. Um, especially V1. They, as they've been sort of introducing more layers, they've been sort of uh, changing it uh, to be in some ways less trustless. Uh, but the original implementation of Uniswap was an unchanging smart contract, uh, and it still exists, and you can use it today. Um, the, so I think, you know, Uniswap itself is a phenomenal technological achievement, and uh, Ethereum paved the way for it. Uh, and I think it's very important for Bitcoiners to be paying very careful attention to what's happening in the rest of the ecosystem because there is a lot of innovation happening and a lot of it is extremely valuable for Bitcoin. So how is Sovereign, I mean, Sovereign is different from Uniswap in many ways, but so let's talk high level. How is, how is Sovereign uh, and Bitcoin different from Uniswap and Ethereum? Well, um, Sovereign, by being based on the Bitcoin ecosystem, uh, has two primary advantages. Uh, the first is that um, its native asset is the largest asset in the space, uh, by far, right? The largest, most liquid asset, Bitcoin, with the largest user base, is the native asset. It's not Ethereum. You don't have to have a different token. Um, and actually... Yeah, you know, so, so so that's one advantage. The second advantage is it's secured by the most secure blockchain in the world, right? It's secured by Bitcoin proof of work, which is orders of magnitude more hash power than uh, Ethereum or anything else. And then there's also, you know, uh, other advantages like the fact that um, by using 
roll up technology and rolling up transactions to the Bitcoin network and, and, and piggybacking on, on Bitcoin proof of work, we have transaction fees which are between one hundredth to one tenth the cost of Ethereum. Uh, actually, one tenth would be much more expensive. It's bit, bit between a thousand, one thousandth, and one hundredth the cost of Ethereum transactions. So um, we have, from a user's perspective, uh, much better uh, cost, uh, much uh, better uh, risk reward ratio, and the ability to natively use their Bitcoin. Why do you think that Uniswap has become uh, so popular? And um, this NFT uh, whole, you know, part of this DeFi explosion as well has become so popular. Is it simply another ICO uh, boom, or do you think that there's going to be some some real value that will remain after that? So I think just saying simply an ICO boom is a huge mistake because a huge amount of real value was created during that ICO boom, uh, and um, Uniswap is an example of that. The reason Uniswap has become so um, popular is because it's an extremely attractive proposition, right? Uh, trade extremely easily between any two assets in the world without having to go through an intermediary, list any asset that you want without any permission. Um, it's, it's, it's the way blockchain should be, right? It's the way decentralized finance uh, should be if it's going to complement decentralized money. So to me, it's a it's a it's a no brainer that you know that kind of product should exist. That kind of protocol should exist. Uh, the confusing part is why it doesn't exist for Bitcoin. With regards to NFTs, I you know I've been talking to a lot of artists. I, I don't I'm not really into art to be honest, but I've been talking to artists because I'm I'm curious about how people think about the world. Mm-hmm. Um, artists they create. You know, they they, 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 they they want to create. And ideally, they would like to be able to make money uh, so that they can support <laughs> their habit of creativity. Um, so in the past, they would paint a painting and then they would sign it. And then you'd have like this unique thing that they could sell. But today, a lot of them are working, you know, in Photoshop or whatever. And now... What are they supposed to do? So suddenly somebody comes to them and says, listen, there's a way that you can actually sign this uh, digitally and authenticate it. Um, That's an extremely interesting proposition for them. It's an extremely interesting proposition for people who are acquiring those pieces. They're not acquiring the art. They're acquiring the signature. Um, And so, you know, there's there's something I really don't like that's happened to Bitcoin, which is... Because there are a lot of scams and have been a lot of scams um, where the primary scam right, has always been, okay, Bitcoin was invented. That means that Satoshi invented money. That's awesome. I also want to invent money because like how <laughs> it's like money from nothing, right? So I'm going to invent money too. And so I'll create some kind of uh, altcoin and I'll tell everyone it's money. Now that's That's been, you know... A long-going scan, which has existed every single time that there's been a cycle, uh, and and Bitcoiners have become very suspicious and wary of it, with good reason. But 
because they became so suspicious and wary of it, they started calling everything that was tokenized a scam, which is absolutely absurd. Um, it goes against everything that we're trying to do. Because having artists sign art uniquely in a way which is publicly viewable on a blockchain is exactly what we want. We want people to start thinking about how do they um, authenticate, prove ownership, and introduce the ability to trade in a censorship-free way using public-private cryptography, right? I mean, that, of course we want that. That builds a digital uh, uh, um, censorship-free economy around uh, Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the center of gravity of this entire ecosystem. Everything, you know, from Ethereum to NFTs revolves around Bitcoin. Bitcoin price goes up, NFT prices go up. Bitcoin price goes down, Ethereum price goes down, right? And so, of course, as we're building out this new reserve asset for a digital world, right, we want to in, 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 create a, a decentralized economy around it. And as people lives become more and more digital, they're going to start seeing more and more value in this. And that's what NFTs represent. I, are NFTs right now overpriced? Uh, almost certainly. Um, is there a whole bunch of nonsense going on? Of course there is. But since when has there not been nonsense in art? I mean, <laughs> you know, people, people yeah. were collecting things long before NFTs, which were absolutely useless i mean i i remember collecting coins numismatic coins exactly uh, you know I, when i was a kid i was collecting garbage pail kid cards right i mean so i spent a whole bunch of my pocket money on these useless pictures right that is why <laughs> you know yeah. the the first bitcoin exchange started out you know mount gox it's called Mount Gox because it was yeah. Magic the Gathering online exchange. People were collecting Magic the Gathering cards. It's not like that's got fundamental use or value. It's it's valuable because people want it, which is really the only reason anything in this world has value. So I think you know we need to try and get as much value onto censorship-resistant platforms that revolve around Bitcoin as possible. Yeah, no, I, I definitely like the sentiment. I think it's uh, it's true to the core of what you know the whole revolution is trying to do. And I think in in many ways it comes down to fees, doesn't it? Because um, you know for years and years, I mean, well before NFTs, well before ICOs, Ethereum was touting uh, this sort of supply chain uh, bolstering in the real economy, where you know if if it was a, a piece of art or a I even saw Jesse Powell recently on Bloomberg. He used the example of a Louis Vuitton bag. Same thing, you know, as the the, the genuineness of that comes straight from the manufacturer, goes to the supplier, the retailer, and eventually to the owner, and it could go as well on into the secondary market. This idea has been around a long, long time, but as we've seen, uh, particularly in Ethereum's case, in times of immense congestion or speculation or whatever, uh, fees don't quite seem to jive with what's going on. Uh, so it does seem that fees are going to be a big part of whether some kind of technology like this can really go mainstream, doesn't it? Not really, not to me. No, I mean, sure, fees are high, uh, but will fees always be high? No. I mean, fees in sovereign are going to be very low, already are low, right? But I mean, even as we expand, they will remain low because we've thought through how the system can scale. Um, and that's true of a lot of other systems being built as well. I mean, <sighs> 
really, I think where we're heading to is a world where almost all scalability is done through zero knowledge proofs, which basically means that you can take off take basically all of the computation off chain, do the computation off chain, and then prove that you've done it using an extremely small zero knowledge proof, which you then provide to the to the blockchain. And so then, then you basically get infinite scalability. So um I don't uh yeah, I don't think that uh I think these are growing pains and trying to extrapolate uh you know, from from the current cost of doing these things to into the future is is is, is a you know it's a huge mistake. It's like trying to extrapolate the cost of a solar power panel based on its price in 1971. I'm very sympathetic to the idea. I'm not uh, I'm not one of those to say that it's you know it's it's never going to work or can't work. I'm just trying to think through some of the some of the arguments. I think you're doing exactly the right thing. Look, I mean. The problem that I have with the Bitcoin community as an insider, as someone who's criticizing my own community, is that the Bitcoin community has become extremely incurious. Not all of it, not even most of it, but a lot of its most vocal proponents. Because, And the reason they're the most vocal is because they have the most simplistic thinking. Right? If you, if there's, there's, there's a very Dunning-Kruger thing happening to Bitcoin right now. Right. The people who are least aware of the potential for the technology are the ones who have the strongest opinions about it. And um, they are missing out, uh, I think, to Bitcoin's detriment on a lot of things that are happening. So sovereign is a very important thing to my mind. That's why I'm devoting so much effort and time to it. At the same time, there are other projects like Stacks, which are also building ways of increasing the security budget of Bitcoin by introducing new ways that you can use your Bitcoin and smart contracts that can be used with Bitcoin. Uh, effectively, not exactly through a side chain, but through sort of like a, 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 a chain which, which piggybacks of, of Bitcoin in a different way. There are other things which are happening as well, like DLCs or RGB protocol, um, which... I think, you know, uh, could potentially be exciting one day, but are, 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 are way behind the sort of, um, you know, uh, EVM-based uh, type smart contract solidity that, um, that Sovereign uses. Um, and, um, and I think that there's really phenomenal stuff being done in the cryptographic space. So zero-knowledge proofs in particular are phenomenally powerful tools. Uh, and so anyone who's not talking to you about these things uh, or is saying things like, you know, Bitcoin only needs to be a store of value and, uh, you, you know, uh, the other systems can't scale and everything else is a scam. They, they, they're talking out of ignorance. And it's, uh, it's, it's offensive to me to see a Bitcoiner be ignorant. Because if there's one thing that I expect a Bitcoiner to be, it's intellectually curious. That is the fundamental aspect of being an adversarial thinker. So I, I find it personally offensive when Bitcoiners are ignorant. Well said. Well, Yaga, I want to be sensitive to your time. I, I did have one more for you, though, because I think we can sort of wrap it up and, and uh, take it back big picture about where we can go here um, with, with Sovereign. Back to what we started talking about at the very beginning of the interview, you know, from governments to 
regulation to whatever. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of hurdles in the way. You know, the airline of, of my second country, Air Baltic, uh, Latvian, uh, Latvia's national airline, in 2014 already, they were accepting Bitcoin for payments. I think they're probably happy from that uh, decision uh, from an investment side, uh, although I, I don't know their balance sheet or anything. But nonetheless, that's a, you know, done through an intermediary, probably BitPay, um, you know, very custodial, many parts of the stack was custodial, no matter how you were interacting with that. And, uh, you know, they're part of the global system as well, which is getting cracking down more and more, even especially with the pandemic, about, uh, you know, controlling people's flow of, uh, of travel and the flow of funds and all the rest. Sa- same idea, right? Whether you're an airline or a bank or whatever. So my question is, I think your vision is, you know, to have this truly permissionless, decentralized, you know, free of censorship. How long do you think that's going to take? You think it will ever happen where we can just, you know, be free to pay for our airline tickets from our mobile wallet that's uh, non-custodial? Or, yeah, uh, I think it's different. Are there, certain, I, I, are there certain things in the world which will always be under the, the strong arm of the government? Well, I think it's already happening. Uh, you know, just two days ago, Visa announced that they were starting to uh, settle their 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 transactions using stablecoins. Yep, now, what that means, and just just so, so you know, if you think about how the Visa network works, right? Um, you've got uh, the acquiring bank, which is uh, the the you, you know your bank, and there's the merchant bank, which is the the business's bank, right? So you go to a business, you want to pay them. The acquiring bank. Um, informs the merchant informs Visa Network, right? That they going that they are going to pay the merchant bank, but it will take a week before the merchant bank gets paid. That's the settlement, right? It's extremely delayed settlement, and so they're taking the merchant bank is taking credit risk on the acquirer bank every time they accept payment. Except if you do it on a state using stablecoins, then it then it confirms in a few seconds. That's a huge improvement. Absolutely. And it also means that the stablecoin is effectively replacing dollars, which were issued by the Federal Reserve, or, or a bank which, were, you know, which, which, which plugs into the Federal Reserve as the means of exchange. Now, that's a, that's a very big deal. Um, and that basically means that so let's take that one step further. So now let's say you have Bitcoin, right? You could you could be sitting on, on a pool of Bitcoin and off the basis of that Bitcoin, you could be borrowing stable coins on an ongoing basis. So you never need to sell your Bitcoin ever again. Uh, you want to buy a, 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 a Coke or, or a coffee, right? The, 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 yep. the famous coffee that you could be buying with Bitcoin. You wouldn't actually buy it with Bitcoin. But you would use your Bitcoin to buy it. So you would borrow off your you know, stack uh, a, a $1.50 worth of stablecoin. And um, because you have you know, all of this Bitcoin collateral, it would be a very low interest loan. And because Bitcoin price is going to go up forever, um, you just basically uh, pay off the interest. You'd never have to pay off the principal. You'd just pay off the, the interest. Uh, if you you know wanted to sell your Bitcoin to do that, or you could you know get a job like a normal person, you bump. <laughs> but um, but you know you never you never need to sell your Bitcoin again, and you can go to any store in the world that accepts Visa, and you 
on the basis of your stack, uh, you, you, you can pay. Now, you can also imagine this happening in a decentralized way, and I think eventually it will. That's what I'm getting at, yeah. Yeah. Visa itself started out as a semi-decentralized effort. I actually have spoken to the guy who founded Visa, um, who's got a really, really interesting life story. Mm. His name is D. Hawk, and his whole um, idea when he started Visa was to create a decentralized uh, global financial settlement system. Interesting. <laughs> um, but it didn't quite work out for him because he didn't have Bitcoin. Um, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, and um, so I, I, I suspect, you know, not every transaction is going to be done through Visa. Visa is going to need to plug into something so they can interact with MasterCard and with PayPal and with the different banks and with, um, you know, uh, Alipay. And what they're going to plug into is going to be a, a, a decentralized uh, global settlement system. And I think that's Bitcoin. That would be a fantastic, uh, fantastic result. 10 years? How long do you think it's going to take? I used to think 20, but now I think um, maybe 10, maybe five. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one more. What do you think about these entrenched people like Ray Dalio who are now, uh, you know, still alluding back to uh, days of yore where gold could be confiscated and he makes these, you know, he, who admittedly is late to the game, but he's making these statements like, well, you know, Bitcoin could become confiscated. I think he's absolutely right. In 1936, the United States confiscated everyone's gold. Uh, in, in 2026, they're going to confiscate everyone's Bitcoin if that Bitcoin is held at Coinbase. So that, that's a major push-pull of uh, worldviews. You know, I mean, there's a lot of optimistic things that we've talked about, a lot of pessimistic things. I think it's, it's incredibly optimistic. I think some, maybe some people are going to be left, you know, with their funds basically trapped in the centralized system. But that's, you know, the thing to do now, the thing we should all be rallying around uh, is building decentralized alternatives so that nobody needs to have their funds on an exchange ever again. Where can our listeners find out more about uh, what you and the uh, community is doing at Sovereign? Right, so Sovereign, I think you, know, you can just go to sovereign.app. That's S-O-V-R-Y-N.app. Uh, you can follow Sovereign on uh, Twitter. Um, that's at Sovereign, S-O-V-R-Y-N-B-T-C. So Sovereign BTC. Um, and if uh, you want, you can also, I suppose, follow me. I'm uh, at Idaniago, E-D-A-N-Y-A-G-O. Well, Iago, it was a pleasure talking with you. Very interesting. Thanks for your views and uh, all the best. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Thanks very much. All right. Take care. Cheers. Cheers.